0: embargo to podcast featuring intelligent talk about sanctions export controls and all things international trade for trade nerds and normal human beings alike I am one of your hosts Brian Fleming here as always with uh, a little more dressed up than usual my friend colleague and co-host Mr. Tim O'Toole what's up Tim
1: how's it going Brian I have a I have a work appointment right after we record, so I actually (laughs) had to look respectable.
0: Tim has a meeting with the government uh, in about an hour, so as a result, we're going to try to do this uh, very efficiently today, and that actually uh, is good because that was our plan all along, to do an all-lightning-round episode today, to catch up on a few things that we uh, missed while we were out on summer vacation and to hit on a couple of other new uh, items that have just popped up in the last week or so. Uh, so welcome to everybody. Uh, welcome back to Embargo. Thank you all for listening. Um, uh, thanks to everybody who listened to the uh, episode that we did a few weeks ago with Michael. Uh, appreciate all the the good feedback and comments we got on that. Um, and we are back to, as I said, uh, more than normal format, although we are going to go all lightning round, round style today. Um, So before I get to the quick rundown of the topics, um, the normal reminders that we are not sharing any confidential information, we're not giving legal advice, any and all opinions that you hear today are those of me and Tim. So if you disagree with them, they are our fault and our fault alone. Uh, If you do like the pod, please subscribe, please leave us a rating, hopefully a five star rating and spread the word. Uh, We are back now that we're just about fully into fall here officially Uh, and so. With that, let me give a quick rundown of what we're going to cover today, and then we'll jump right in. Uh, So again, on the old lightning round episode, we are going to cover Iran, JCPOA 2.0, Afghanistan, Russia, Belarus, um, China through the lens of CFIUS, which we haven't talked about in 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 a little while. Um, a recent OFAC enforcement action that is uh, back to Iran again for, for a few minutes. And then uh, closing with uh, something really, truly brand new, which is Ethiopia and the new executive order and the new program that were just stood up on Friday. We're recording this on Monday, September twenty. So uh, with that, Tim, any comments before we dive right in? It's a
1: small world, Brian. Lots of different countries in it and lots yeah. of different countries today.
0: Exactly. So with that, let's pause for the... Lightning round sound effect at the beginning, and we will run through our seven topics. Here we go. Number one, Iran, JCPOA 2.0. We have not uh, talked about this in now quite some time, with good reason. There hasn't been much going on. But uh, just in the last week or so, there has been some news I think that's worthy to check in on, which is namely that there um, since President Raisi was um, sworn into office in Iran uh, in August, um there was a lot of speculation as to what's going to happen next will the talks resume the indirect talks in vienna and there is also this brewing standoff that had happened in terms of the iaea uh, team being able to effectively monitor the nuclear sites in iran Uh, well just about a week ago now that impasse at least for the moment seems to have been um sort of resolved, which is uh, Iran indicated they would allow the IAEA monitoring team to be able to uh, get access uh, to update some of the monitoring equipment and footage and uh, the sort of recordings that are being made at the sites and, and the like. And, and um, that's all kind of in process now. And that was prompted in part by threat of a censure among IAEA um, at the IAEA meeting that just took place last week which could have had some additional consequences at the U.N. and perhaps beyond. Um, the U.S. not surprisingly has maintained sort of a, uh, I think, a, a pretty steady line here that that they anticipate talks resuming, that they're waiting for Iran to essentially come back to the table. There's a U.N. General Assembly meeting in New York this week. There was some expectation that perhaps there could be some talks on the sidelines of that. The U.S. is kind of um, Pooh-poohed that to some degree. So unclear whether anything is going to be discussed even on the sidelines of that indirectly this week. But that's pretty much where we are, which is I think everybody is now, we're kind of positioned back in place for more talks to happen soon, which both sides and all of the P5 plus one countries seem to indicate is the expectation that that will happen probably sometime in October, but that's kind of where we are. So I'll throw it to Tim for any quick thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, not a lot is happening. I do think, you know, it's interesting to note how far we've come from March and April when we had leaks from, you know, a bunch of the parties in the room suggesting that a, a resumed deal was imminent. Um, you know, now the the good news is that the deal is not dead yet, um, because if, if the U.S. had lodged a grievance with the IAEA and Iran had basically refused to comply with any sort of monitoring. I think the deal would have been dead. So it was on the brink. It didn't die yet, but we do seem pretty far away from a a renewed deal since talks aren't even going on at this point.
0: Yeah, sort of two final quick points. One is I I saw somewhere that someone pointed out, like, look, with Raisi coming in and he's got a whole new team that he's putting in place to, to be part of the talks, not surprisingly. If he had wanted to kill the deal, he could have done it right now, right? So the fact that he did not do that, I think, signals that Iran does still want a deal. The U.S. clearly still wants a deal. I think everybody involved in the P5 plus one wants a deal. How we get there continues to be the sticking point, and And I think that still remains a little TBD how we're going to get there. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that's where we are. I will say that I have certainly heard rumblings and you may have, too. From others, kind of out in the wild in Europe and other places, that they are certainly watching this closely, and I think there's a feeling, perhaps, that there's some pre-planning going on of like six months from now, perhaps we could get back into Iran, and there there might be, you know, th- some things that could be explored and done in the future. I think there's still that optimism, cautious optimism, out there for people who want this to happen and want to um, see things open back up, and uh, assuming the sanctions relief comes through, so. Um, you know, I'll just add that, that that certainly hasn't seemed to gone away at the moment.
1: The the fundamental dynamic hasn't really changed in the sense that the Iranians want back into the deal all of, all other things being equal, and the US wants back into the deal all things all other things being equal. But that's been the dynamic for eight months now, and they actually don't seem to be that close to a deal. And I do think the longer it takes the less likely a deal is so so i i think the clock is ticking but um you know i agree with you if rice wanted out he he had an easy opportunity to get out at this point and he didn't do it so it's still alive
0: yeah so with that we'll leave a run for now obviously we'll be coming back to this soon uh but let's move on to afghanistan and i will send that to tim
1: so afghanistan we spent a long time on the last podcast talking about afghanistan and and the, the what the sticky problem there is that the taliban is a specially designated global terrorist and um when the government is run by a, a an already designated terrorist group it creates lots of issues with respect to trade in a particular co- country because the government has its fingerprints on all sorts of different transactions and as a result anybody who's trying to do business in the country has to figure out how can i get humanitarian aid into the country for example without providing support or basically dealing with the te- the terrorist designated government um, as we talked about in the last in the last segment uh, you know the the dynamic isn't likely to change because the idea that uh, the us is going to essentially undesignate the Taliban um, is just doesn't seem very realistic. If anything,
0: I think that's been put to I think that's been put to bed at this point. I think it's pretty clear that's not going to happen.
1: Right. I mean, and 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 and, you know, there's lots of reasons it won't happen. But I think politically, you know, from what I'm reading in the last few weeks, it just seems like it's a non-starter. And I don't think the administration was going there. I think that also became apparent really during the pullout when the State Department went to OFAC and asked for a license that allowed it to undertake transactions that would have otherwise been prohibited by the SDGT um, regulations And, and basically it wanted to deal with the Taliban as it needed to in order to get humanitarian trade into the country and OFAC granted the license the next day. So at least for the next six months from the US government's perspective Um, It shouldn't have any real obstacles to getting humanitarian assistance into the country. But that seems like a very temporary kind of makeshift solution. And I I don't know what's next, but I suspect there will be some GLs dealing with humanitarian assistance so that it's not just the State Department that's able to do that.
0: Right. It, it, the the license that Tim's referring to was, is kind of interesting. And, and my understanding is that, and the way we've learned about this is my that this is being sort of shared with and given to parties who are acting sort of at the, in concert with or under the direction of or under the umbrella of the State Department humanitarian efforts, whether it's NGOs or the like. So there is some coverage, at least for the moment, in terms of these humanitarian aid organizations. I would expect at some point there will be a full Iran Afghanistan program and some GLs, as Tim said, I think then that leaves kind of the big picture question that we raised the last time, which is, well, what's the approach going to be kind of long term here? I think it's clear that Taliban is not is not is going to remain designated. And I think the U.S. is taking a little bit of a wait and see approach in terms of whether they need to ratchet that up or do some additional targeted sanctions focused on the regime or certain actors within the regime, depending on how they behave here in these early stages and all of the rhetoric that's coming out and all of the statements that are coming out is, you know, look, if they want to be, you know, treated as a, uh, a ruling governmental organization, they, they sort of have to act as such. And if, if right. they, if they act like a terrorist organization, then that's how we're going to treat them. If they act like a government, then, then perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll rethink things a little bit. So. I think the big picture, what are we going to do, what's the U.S. sanctions kind of puzzle going to look like with respect to Afghanistan is not even close to being resolved yet. I think it is. I think what's clear is it seems that this is what we have for now, this this license that Tim referenced and then, you know, Taliban not coming, not not going to, you know, its designation not going away. And then a little bit of a wait and see.
1: Yeah. I mean, the one thing, the, the, the final point that I would add to that is. the the big consequence of being on the sdgt list for the taliban and now that they're the government is that they're going to have a very hard time um accessing funds and and making international banking transactions and for a government that's a big problem especially a government here where you know if you believe the reports and you know i tend to believe them the the government is on the brink of collapse in the sense that they they have no infrastructure. They've been war torn for 20 years, and you know a lot of the reports suggested that a lot of the money that might have been um, sent to them for that purpose was intercepted by the the previous government. And so, so you've got this kind of government that is teetering and has no access to funds, and that seems to be US strategy here. So it's not an unintended consequence, but it isn't a a situation that can can last in the long term because there don't seem seem to be a lot of alternatives to the Taliban as the government in Afghanistan.
0: Right, right. So yeah, sustainability is not on the side of the current strategy, it seems. So we will have to, that's why I think the wait and see is Pretty open-ended and could take us in any number of different directions kind of long-term here so we'll we'll have to keep a close eye on that but for now that's that's sort of where we are with afghanistan um so zipping right along and moving to topic number three this is one now this is a little bit of a um looking back to something that came up while we were on vacation in august so uh, back on august 20 was the one-year anniversary of the poisoning of Alexei navalny Uh, and so on that date, and this has become a favored tactic of, um, the new administration is to sort of roll out and the next one of the Belarus is going to be the same thing. The next, uh, on the one year anniversary, there's sort of a sanctions package that gets announced to denounce the behavior, the malign activity that was the root cause of this. And it's sort of a, a clever kind of marketing strategy, if you will, when it comes to to packaging up some of these things. So on that date, there was a number of different sanctions that were announced relating some under the Chemical Biological Weapons Act um, and some under kind of related authorities by both Treasury and state. And then on the same day, there was actually back to one of our favorite topics. There was a new executive order that was issued relating to Nord Stream 2, which we we announced was essentially done in dead and buried in terms of the US action on that front, but not the case because there is a new executive order that was signed on August 20th by President Biden, 14039, which is not a drastic change from what was in place before. It sort of did away with the, um, the imports exception and, and allows for sort of full blocking sanctions to be imposed under PISA with relation to um, the, the actors that are involved in the, in the pipeline development. And so that is now in fact the case that there's a few different entities and vessels that are now fully blocked as a result of this, there is a general license in place to cover a lot of activities with those entities. But, um, if they are sort of specifically listed on the SDN list, then they are basically carved out of that. So I guess just any quick thoughts that you have on, on either of those actions, just, you know, again, sort of, um, Nord Stream 2 is just the issue that's never going to die, it seems, even though we're we're sort of still using the ally-friendly rhetoric in in pushing these things out and then anything more broadly on Navalny or any of the other activities there.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can talk about it with Belarus too, but I I think that these actions are are largely symbolic at this point um, because they don't really add anything new. Uh, but they are designed to kind of coincide with an anniversary, and it makes for a nice press release. But I'm I'm not sure that it's a a big change in sanctions law. I mean, there's a few more people on the SDN list or entities on the SDN list as a result, but but not much has changed. At least that's my my sense.
0: Yeah, some of the CBW Act related things now in terms of imports exports from Russia, I think t- sort of tighten the clamps a little bit. But that's kind of the general trend we've seen across the board. So this is sort of more the same in that regard. Uh, in my view, I don't know that it's a drastic change, but yeah, I agree with you. I think this is sort of a useful tactic to continue to beat the drum on the sort of Russian malign activities and and have this kind of front and center on a on a fairly regular basis uh, with this administration. So um, yeah, not not too much more to add there. Um, and so with that, yeah, let's pivot to again the sort of Kind of a, a kind of related topic a sister topic which is belarus and what we what we saw come out right uh, right in ab- august as well
1: right right around the same time is august 9th um executive order 14038 um, was signed by president biden uh, it relates to belarus uh, it was uh, intentionally timed to coincide with what the administration Described as his essentially having s- stolen the, the presidency after having lost the election, he claimed widespread fraud, um, and was actually successful in in keeping his position, mostly because the military supported his takeover of the country, and so. To coincide with the one-year anniversary of that, uh, the administration issued an executive order, essentially expanding uh, OFAC's authority to impose more sanctions against Belarus. Now, you know, you want to be careful about this because they really haven't done this yet, but it does make the entire government of Belarus potentially subject to sanctions, including all agencies of the government. So the 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 reach is broad, and then it also um, had a number of Uh, a number of economic sectors that were also basically put under theoretical sanctions. So you've got the, the defense sector, the energy sector, the potash sector, the tobacco sector, the construction sector. They made a number of designations that day as well, and they you know with respect to these sectors they often described those sectors as you know this portion of Lukashenko's wallet i think is ofac's term essentially these were sectors that ofac had decided and, and entities that they designated that ofac decided had been not only supporting lukashenko you know politically but also uh, financially and so the the purpose of these designations the stated purpose was to essentially try and cut off lukashenko's access to resources they also sanctioned uh, uh, you know, one legislator who supported him after he uh, apparently ordered the the, uh, the the seizure and kidnapping of an airplane out of that was flying over Belarus back in May, and some of the individuals who participated in that operation were also put under sanctions. So it was significant, but I, I I do still see kind of a hesitation to go after Belarus more strongly, in part because it's in the in the heart of Europe there's more connections between belarus and some of the friendly countries there i think we're also deferring some to the eu uh, on this because you know this was essentially an attack on an eu flight you know eu country to eu country and so i think we're letting the eu take a lead but um from a symbolic perspective it was interesting to do this a year later from a um you know from a what is the the, the short term effect going to be? I'd say it's not going to be huge. I've gotten a few calls about it already from some of the sectors that had connections to the U.S., which obviously created big problems for for those companies. But um, as a practical matter, I think this is one that sets the stage for really ramping up sanctions if the the Belarusian government you know continues to misbehave. But in the short term, I, I think this is probably all that's going to happen in the short term
0: right i would i would just add sort of two additional comments along the same lines one is um as tim said given the breadth of the executive order which now makes many of these key industries in belarus key to the key to the regime and key just to their economy more broadly it just makes it that much more complicated to sort of continue to do business you know without incurring lots of risk in that In that jurisdiction and i think it's that those are the types of calls that i think we're getting which are people looking ahead they're not necessarily dealing with parties that are sanctioned right now but now they're fearful that they could be dealing with parties or have business or have connections or partnerships in sectors that are going to be susceptible to sanctions in the future under this executive order and so what do we do do we pull up stakes now do we sort of have an escape plan if 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 things get worse what do we do so i think those are sort of the the risk judgments that a lot of companies are looking at right now especially companies that are based in europe that have just more connections there generally, I think. And then the second thing is it strikes me that this approach is, is very similar to what we've seen with Burma. Yeah. And so it's, it's sort of the same kind of approach. It's, you know, the executive order, it's kind of the wallet you you're sort of canvassing the wallet of the regime, the disfavored regime to try to, put in place all the authorities you need to go after their, their sources of revenue and and potentially target those in a strategic way to dry up their resources. Um, but you're trying not to put the clamps down and impose something that is going to be more drastic and could then have secondary tertiary consequences that you just don't want to trigger. And so I think that this to me seems like a very similar approach there. It gives the U S and gives OFAC more flexibility to expand in the future in a more targeted way. But right now, Uh, it is, they're, they're trying to be a bit surgical into how they, how they go about this.
1: Yeah. I mean I think it's it's it, it sets the stage. It also just dries up foreign investment. I mean nobody people who see these orders and particularly how broad these sectors are are not going to make a decision right now to go into those sectors. They may not pull out immediately, but they're certainly those sectors for are likely not to expand in Belarus anytime soon now that they're kind of the potential target of sanctions. Somebody wants to get into those sectors knowing that one stroke of a pen and that your, you know, your supplier is an SDN.
0: Right, absolutely. Um, okay, and so with that, we are flying along. We're on to topic number five, and this is a favorite of ours, but one we haven't talked about in a while, which is Cepheus in China. So, one there was a, a transaction in particular that was in that was in the news or in the spotlight to some degree uh, just in the past few weeks, relating to um, a transaction focused on the semiconductor industry, which is we know is is a hot button topic when it comes to China, whether it be with respect to foreign investment or export controls, uh, or the like. And so this is the, um, magnet chip, uh, semiconductor corporation this, that this is a deal. And for the background here very quickly, for those who don't know about this, um, back in, uh, the early part of this year, there was a deal announced and magnet chip is actually based in um, south Korea, but incorporated in delaware uh through a various you know its structures and um there was a chinese p e firm that was investing in this south Korean entity um and uh CFIUS, uh got wind of this it was not notified to the committee but because they're because they are, re- they are um listed in the u s and they are incorporated in the u s there was um, a notice that was sent by the non-notified team at Cifius to say, we think we need to see a filing on this transaction because it comes within our jurisdiction. And they went through the process. And apparently by late August, there was a-, a letter that was sent that said, we believe there's unresolved national security issues that can't be mitigated. And we're prepared to refer this matter to the president for prohibition for blocking. And what has now happened, it seems based on the the 8K filing with the SEC that chip made just a few days ago, They apparently requested of CFIUS the ability to do what's known as a withdrawal and refile, which we've talked about before, which is typically something you do when you kind of run out of time in the CFIUS process. And you say, look, we want to take one more go at trying to come up with some solution that might be palatable to the committee that would prevent this from being recommended for a block to the president. And so that's where they are now. They are back on the clock, I think, as of just a couple of days ago. So they have until sort of late October to get through the initial 45 day period. And then that could potentially roll over for another 45 to for an investigation. But um, that's where they are, is that there was all signals were that this was a deal that was about to get blocked and um, they're they're now in sort of you know version 2.0 of trying to get this reviewed by CFIUS and perhaps come up with some kind of a mitigation plan that would be palatable um, and address the unresolved national security concerns. So the two things I'll note, um, or I'll let me know three things really quickly. So, um, again, this was not notified to the tr- committee, which perhaps is not that surprising given that it's a Chinese firm that was looking at a Korean company, but because of the connections to the U S CFIUS took the view and, after having learned about it, that it was within their jurisdiction and and asked for a filing. So that's notable because of the scope of the, the breadth of the jurisdiction, something to bear in mind for anybody out there that thinks that they might be entirely clear of CFIUS jurisdiction, you know, make you you better be pretty sure of that if you're going to proceed because they these, these guys were um, pretty far along and then got the tap on the shoulder that said, we think we actually want to take a look at this one. Um, number two is, um, again, this was it was not notified so breadth of trend breadth of jurisdiction with not notifying those are sort of two i think increasing trends uh, uh, you know post firma that we've been seeing that this is kind of bearing out now and playing out now in a very kind of public way here and then the third thing is semiconductors you know you cannot stress enough what a priority this is and continues to be and has been now for the u.s government for such a long time in terms of any u.s uh semiconductor you know whether it's technology expertise, IP, uh, trade secrets, financing, anything—they're going to try to get their hands on if it's if it's going to flow back to China. And so I think that's what we're seeing here is sort of all those things kind of playing out. And so it's it's an interest—it's kind of an interesting one. We haven't had one of these bubble up in a while. It's the first one to my knowledge that's sort of bubbled up to have been positioned for a referral to the president in a block, at least under the current administration, and first one in a little while. Um and so, you know, largely at the end of the day, this is not anything different than what we saw under the prior administration. And it's not really that different than what we saw toward the end of the Obama administration in terms of the way this has played out. I think if anything, broader reach, more aggressive, um, and kind of a ruthless efficiency with sort of identifying this, saying, nope, this is not going to be able to happen and, and now this is where they are. So that's that's what I have on that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was a pretty aggressive action. And I think that's what jumps out at the most to me from this is that you have uh, CFIUS post-FIRMA with a, a an affirmative, uh, essentially law enforcement unit that is now trying to find deals that might be subject to its jurisdiction and and reviewing those deals in a way that prior to FIRMA, I mean, we just didn't see and and wouldn't expect i mean yeah they always they could, did
0: it they always did it but it was more ad hoc sure. and they have far more resources dedicated yeah
1: to yeah no, i mean they they always did it but but yeah. you pre-firma and pre you know the, the building of this unit the assumption was basically it it could come to their attention. And if it did kind of randomly come to their attention, then they they certainly have always had the power to reach out like this, but they just, they just weren't doing it on, on such a regular basis. It was just random as to the transactions they'd find. This doesn't seem random at all. This seems like they're watching this industry in particular, very, very closely and are getting staffed up enough so that they can go after transactions like this um, when they, when they, want to and, and need to i mean i the second thing that i'll I'll throw out there is it's just it's also just a, another good example of how aggressive they're being on on china and this is not you know it it might relate to huawei i mean it, i think there's a lot left behind the scenes that we don't know about in the sense that you know the the semiconductor charge has been led um you know by the actions that the commerce department in particular has taken against huawei with respect to huawei's entity list status and basically you know refining what that entity list status meant particularly with regard to semiconductors um, but it does seem like if you're if you're in kind of the sweet spot where you've got a china connection and a semiconductor connection um CFIUS is looking and you're it's unlikely that you're going to be able to get investment deals done that involve that particular combination of factors without attracting some attention, which suggests that if you're going to go down that road, you probably just ought to show up in Cepheus, which, which brings me to the third thought here. And I'm going to throw it back to you on this. I mean, if, if, if I were looking at how to mitigate this transaction, I'm not sure where I'd begin because I guess the only thought that I would have is that you'd need to do it in a way where the investment is purely passive and the Chinese investors are not going to be able to get their hands on the semiconductor technology in any meaningful way and not be able to use the semiconductor technology to supply Chinese companies like Huawei. But at the end of the day, I don't know how you would make that happen in a way that's enforceable. So I'm not sure where I'd go on the mitigation.
0: Yeah, I think that, I think that's particularly difficult because my understanding is that the company that Magnetchip does not have operations in the U.S. So this is not the kind of thing that is really susceptible to the typical monitoring protocols and oversight protocols that CFIUS would normally want to put in place for a deal like this. If it's if it even even in a country like Korea, which is a, a close U.S. ally, there's just that distance, I think, makes it impractical, if not impossible, to to get the level of comfort that you could have. Perhaps if this was a company that was sitting in, you know, Silicon Valley or Austin or Boston or some, you know, some other tech hotbed in the US, it, it might maybe incrementally increase the possibility you could find some solution. But here, I, I agree. I don't, I'm not quite sure how you do that or how they could ever get comfortable with that. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see if, we'll see if perhaps they, perhaps they come up with um, a, you know, a solution in the next couple months. But yeah, I agree. I think it's a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty tall task and a pretty uphill battle to, to see how they could come up with something that would, that would work here. All right. All right. With that, let's leave Cepheus behind for the moment. We have two topics to go. We are flying through. Flying um, and, through. and so by our standards, we're definitely flying through. Um, and so uh, with that, let me turn to Tim to talk briefly about a recent OFAC settlement
1: all right well we're going to talk about a settlement that took place on August 27th um, and it was a settlement between a bank so First Bank SA and OFAC First Bank SA is located in Romania um, and it was it, it essentially admitted to having processed US dollar payments for a bunch of sanctioned countries. So essentially, uh, it was processing US dollar payments uh, for entities located in Iran, it was processing US dollar payments for entities located in Syria, and um, it was also processing euro-denominated payments to Iran. as a foreign sub of a US company. And so that last one um, is something that I wanted to think a little bit harder about because at least in 2018, First Bank was a Romanian bank. Um, Non-US dollar payments could be processed by a Romanian bank. Potentially there were some secondary sanctions issues, but if it's Euro payments and it's a Romanian bank and there's no US nexus to the transaction, then these potentially were not sanctionable um, transactions. But in 2018, uh, First Bank, a a Romanian bank was bought by a US company. And so it was bought by JC Flowers. And after JC Flowers took over, uh, JC Flowers, I believe, did a review post-closing and determined that there were at least some potential sanctions issues, did a voluntary disclosure, and then did a five-year look back and found these violations that I was just talking about. As it turned out that was good for jc flowers because um essentially once it found these and disclosed them and there were a decent number of them i think it was about 1.7 million dollars worth of transactions they all came under the umbrella of the voluntary disclosure and uh it was able to take what would it could have been a pretty high penalty given you know the number of transactions and the the, the amount and came to a settlement of of 862318 which is it, pretty good considering, um, you know, how long the violations took place and, and and what was happening in connection with them. And I think it's an example of a situation where when you're, you know, weighing should I go do a voluntary disclosure, it, it's a good example of how you can get pretty significant leniency from a voluntary disclosure. I think what it illustrates, uh, it, and, and this is, you know, this is how i think we would have read it anyway but ofac always gives the little helpful um lessons at the end one is that you know as a romanian bank uh, it, it appears that uh that that the that uh first bank was not particularly conversant in us sanctions and what sort of us nexus would would could potentially result in a us sanctions violation so it was doing dollar transactions without seeming to realize that that was a sufficient us nexus which is a problem I mean even before the US takeover and then after the US uh takeover it became subject to the provision of the Iran regs that that deals with US owned or controlled companies and so it's a good example of you know both when you are a US investor how minimal the OFAC knowledge might be even within foreign banks and you know which is why when you do do a transaction like this as a u.s company you've got to come in do your due diligence do your post-closing due diligence and really try and make sure that you get the house in order because This, you know, obviously nobody wants to get, you know, close to $900,000 penalty, but this could have been a lot worse if they had handled this differently and had come to OFAC's attention another way. So it's, you know, an example of why voluntary disclosures are sometimes helpful to companies and and why, as a U.S. investor, if you buy a foreign company, you really do need to do your risk assessment and do your look at at, um, potential OFAC compliance. And when you find bad stuff, make an informed decision about whether to disclose.
0: Yeah, no, I agree with all that. I, I would just add a couple of quick points. One is, it, to me, it's that it's that last piece. It's the euro-denominated transactions that occurred entirely outside the U.S. financial system, but occurred after the U.S. parent had bought the Romanian bank. Yeah. And then, as yeah. Tim said, that then puts you under um, that puts you under uh, two fifteen, and you're going to be covered uh, by the you know, foreign entities owned or controlled by US persons provisions. These are the, these are the provisions, of course, that during the time the US was part of the JCPOA that, you know, general license H was allow was intended to sort of allow a bit of a carve out here where as long as no US persons involved, you can, you can, you know, the non-US aspects of, of these types of entities were allowed to do some of these types of things depending on the circumstances, but here, uh, you know, not the case any longer, obviously. And I think that's one where People get tripped up on that a lot. And I would also add in the same vein, I think people also say, and, and this, it seems was just a bit of a disconnect when the U S parent came in, they, they ascribe. Well, if we just do the transaction in euros, then we'll be fine. We don't have to worry about we don't have to worry about OFAC, which is just not the case. It is just not the case for a variety of reasons. This being one of them is is obviously is here with the U.S. parent. Then that's you put you in very different footing. But even if it was not a U.S. parent. And euros were involved, then you know who. Then you still have to worry about sort of the banks you're dealing with and many other aspects of you, it. US, in of it could inter- be
1: U.S. goods. You could have a U.S. person that's in the chain and some that other are way. facilitating. Services. Exactly. Right.
0: Yeah. So it just. I think that the, the. I just wanted to flag that one thing because I've heard so many times when people say, "Well, as long as we right. do it in euros, it won't be a problem." And that's not. That's not necessarily the case. And so anybody who thinks that that is shorthand for. It is U.S. sanctions compliant as long as we do it in euros that is under the ITSR. That is just don't don't use that as um, as a fail safe because you need to you need to think through the other consequences of the structure who's involved and how it's all going to work to really understand whether or not it is in fact compliant.
1: You can see how this happened. I hadn't really focused on it until you were talking about this last kind of tranche of euro payments but the timing also would have created
0: right after the confusion. Re-imposition. i mean it's right. it's
1: as as general license h was going away going away yep and and not only that i mean it's pretty the, these transactions are pretty soon after the takeover i mean I, I it's been my experience i mean it's not it's not um you know best practices obviously but when a company does its due diligence does the takeover um it takes a little while to actually come in and do all of the post closing um, you know due diligence and or uh, you know uh, the the remediation measures that you need to take. And so here, you know the these transactions were only a few months after the close and while general license h is is essentially going away but creating confusion along the way and so i can see how it happened although right. it is a real problem because they certainly weren't i think they were doing exactly what you said brian which was well these are euros so we don't have to worry about it
0: right it may very well have been the case and so um in any event i think just a few interesting little tidbits from that one um that maybe you don't see in every, uh, in every OFAC settlement. So we, we just wanted to call those out, bring them to attention uh, quickly uh, because they are pretty common. These are common issues that we see that come up time and again, sort of across the board, not just in the financial sector, but in other sectors that that have these types of issues come up. Um, and so that brings us now to the final topic of the day, the final topic of the episode, which is Ethiopia and the new executive order that was just issued on Friday and the new program that has now been stood up um, to address uh human rights humanitarian and human rights related concerns in Ethiopia and so you know this is a uh the you know the executive order that's in place here um and I should say we've gotten already a number of questions as I'm sure many others have as well because you see a new program you see a new executive order I think immediately people say well wait a minute what is does that mean I have to stop doing business in Ethiopia? Does that mean that um, you know, how broad does the sweep? I mean these to be clear, these are, I think this is a it's a menu based sanctions program. This is not, uh, which includes potentially blocking sanctions that can be imposed on the on the folks that are identified here um, and determined to be uh, you know, among the categories of sanctionable persons under the program. but it is not um, at the moment sort of a broad or sweeping, Program that I would that I would expect to to sort of, um, you know, sev- you know, severely hinder the ability, in particular, of humanitarian aid and goods to continue to flow to Ethiopia. In fact, it's designed to sort of do the opposite of that, I think, and and to hopefully help that occur more seamlessly and and perhaps again in a in a very targeted way. This is sort of a theme that we've already hit on a couple times today. Um, go after sort of the true bad actors in the view of OFAC and the U.S. government. And you know, put them, uh, sort of target them for um, certain menu-based sanctions, and then hopefully allow for the uh, unencumbered uh, flow of humanitarian aid and goods to to continue to go to the country. So, so that's sort of in a in a nutshell what what you're dealing with here um, with the new Ethiopia executive order. So. I'll I'll throw it to Tim for some quick thoughts. Yeah, on
1: I I mean I don't have much to add to that. I mean, it's basically, you know, the questions that that I'm seeing so far are you know is Ethiopia uh, Ethiopia under sanctions I'm doing I've got some business opportunities there can I not do business in Ethiopia and the answer is n- no Ethiopia is th- th- this was not designed to keep business out of Ethiopia this was a very limited sanctions program that is unlikely to expand in a way that some of these other ones would so the Belarus sanctions they really are going after the Belarus government it is designed to put pressure on the leadership of Belarus this was much more i think intended to be much more targeted at the conflict in northern ethiopia and really trying to prevent human rights violations trying to um you know help to prevent you know seizures or or essentially theft of some of the humanitarian aid that was going into that region and so the whole point was to actually help trade a certain kind of trade at least in ethiopia um not to essentially put pressure on companies to to get out of the company or country altogether but I fear, you know, that that the way that these sanctions programs tend to work is that banks are going to start looking at Ethiopia as a higher risk country now, and it may make it harder to actually send the sort of transactions into Ethiopia than it was before the sanctions quarter came out. But, you know, we'll see. But just the the reaction of some of the the questions that I'm getting makes me worried that this is going to be viewed much more broad as being much more broad than it actually is and much less targeted
0: yeah i to that to that um point i would just encourage anybody who's who's interested or this to whom this may be relevant to take a look at the faqs that were issued um contemporaneously with the release of the executive order because um the ofac makes very clear for example that the fifty percent rule is not going to apply here yep um and, and i think that's always a you know that's given that these are menu based sanctions they are meant to be very specifically targeted and they are not meant to sort of cast a wide net as they as they are in other programs and for exactly the reasons that Tim just said. Um and so, you know, our hope would be that people are going to actually read and understand the scope of these and not uh sort of read too much into them or read them in a in sort of an unnuanced right. way to to presume too much about what this now uh prohibits or limits uh or could prohibit or limit in the future. So Uh, Yeah, I agree with everything Tim said, but, but obviously as, as time goes on, I think we'll, we'll see and get a sense of how these are being, um, you know, implemented and interpreted. I would presume that we'll probably see more. There were a few general licenses issued right away and I I presume we'll see more of that. Um, And as designations are rolled out uh, in the future, we'll, we'll sort of see how those are targeted and, and whether they sort of stay in line with what we're expecting
1: yeah I mean, I wish there were an easy way to put it in the sense that Ethiopia is really not under sanctions. There are some sanctions that apply in in Ethiopia to right. a targeted group of people and And that is really the difference between this and, say, a you know an Iran type program and or even a burma or or Belarus type program. But I, I worry about overcompliance uh, with respect to these and that they might make the situation worse
0: right given that this is brand new barely 48 hours old we will keep our eyes on how this is how this is going to play out and again how it's implemented and, and uh enforced going forward but um, for the time being uh that's what we're sort of what we're expecting with the new program in ethiopia so with that i think we are wrapped up and that is a record for us that seven is, a record. That is topics. A truly that's truly a lightning round by our standards that's seven topics and not even 45 minutes so um, I think on the next episode, so thank you for joining on the next episode. I, I we're possibly, if not likely going to have some guests on to talk about, uh, perhaps a more, um, sort of targeted subtopic that we also don't get to talk about enough on the show, perhaps more going forward, but, uh, we're, we're still working on that. But I think in a couple of weeks, we will be back in, um, early October with, a with our new episode, probably a guest or two that are going to join, uh, to, to discuss that with us. And. And so we're we're looking forward to that. But, um, you know, pen, unless there's unless there's a breakthrough in the Iran, in the Iran talks right. or something truly monumental happens in the next two weeks, which, you know, there could be another coup as we speak right now, the way things are going. So in 2021. So so who knows? But um, that's or our another, plan for now. or another or another
1: no hitter. I think they're about equally <laughs> common in 2021.
0: I think there's more no hitters than coups, thankfully, if any yes. baseball fans out there, but um, not by many, not by many. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, So with that, thank you all for joining us for this all lightning round edition of Embargoed. Uh, We appreciate you uh, stopping by. uh, And until next time, I hope everybody stays well and stays sanctions free.
1: Stay sanctions free, everybody.
0: Thanks, everybody.